Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanthi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, this month in Cleveland, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame will add more than a half dozen artists to its permanent roster. This year's class of inductees includes such luminaries as Sister Rosetta Tharp, The Moody Blues, Nina Simone, Dire Straits, and The Cars. But one act on the roster, the most controversial of this year's nominees, let alone inductees, has outgrossed all of these other acts, maybe even combined when you include their live tour grosses. They are beloved by rock fans the world over and have scored number one hits on the... They are living legends who have influenced generations of... Uh, Chris Barube, just play these jerks already. Shut to the heart and you're too late, darling. You give love a bad name. That, God help me, is You Give Love a Bad Name, the 1986 number one hit by those hair metal prom kings, Bon Jovi. Folks, full disclosure. This podcast does not solely reflect the tastes of your humble host. However, this is our 12th episode of Hit Parade. Happy first birthday to us, by the way. And up to now, I have been fond of virtually all of the music we've covered. Yes, even stuff as goofy as UB40's Red Red Wine, or as schlocky as Do They Know It's Christmas, or as decadent as MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. And artists like The Beatles, Donna Summer, George Michael, Tom Petty, Prince, and Madonna are all beloved legends as far as I'm concerned. That is certainly not the case with Bon Jovi. I am publicly, on record, loathing this band. In 2012, in a Village Voice series called First Worsts, I wrote an article chronicling my three-decade history of hating Bon Jovi, particularly its smug, self-satisfied, band self-titling lead singer John Bon Jovi. I bemoaned how his band's pushy captain-of-the-football-team music helped nudge the new wave pop I loved off the U.S. charts. And one last self-absorbed detail. Since 2015, I have been a balloted voter for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I am honored to be among the roughly thousand musicians, producers, industry figures, journalists, and critics invited to vote on Hall inductees each year. And it will come as no surprise, dear listener, that when Bon Jovi's name appeared on the Rock Hall ballot last fall, I did not check that box. I offer all this preamble as a disclaimer and a self-puncturing. Bon Jovi are now permanently enshrined in Cleveland, and clearly my opinions are about as influential as a bucket of warm spit. As they have been since 1986. Much to my chagrin, Bon Jovi have been running roughshod over the Billboard charts for most of the last 32 years. Even when it looked like changing tastes in the 1990s might finally leave them behind, they have proved resilient, irrepressible, unkillable. Here's the thing about Bon Jovi, though. 
hateful and insipid as they may be, they might well belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If influence is a criterion for Hall induction, even malign influence, that works in their favor. Because Bon Jovi are influential. They hold a unique place in the history of hard rock, heavy metal, and the pop charts. And they are musically influential in ways that might not even be fully appreciated by John Bon Jovi's own fans. And good God, what is it with you people? Why are you encouraging him? So today, Hit Parade takes on its ultimate challenge, mounting a defense, or at least an explanation, of the phenomenon that is Bon Jovi. We will consider what made them innovative in the middle of the 1980s. And, when I am not feeling queasy using words like innovative and Bon Jovi in the same sentence, I will try to give due deference to this band that, critics be damned, is deep into its fourth decade as a Billboard chart-topper. In fact, however dubious, Bon Jovi scored their latest chart-topping album under shady circumstances just weeks ago. This house is not for sale. But let's hold that thought about how exactly Bon Jovi are still topping charts in 2018. Let's go back to the root of their success, the single that marked a sea change in how metal-adjacent rock was received on the charts and on the radio, the song we played at the top of the show. That is where your hit parade marches today, the week ending November 29th, 1986, when You Give Love a Bad Name by Bon Jovi hit number one on the Hot 100. It spent only one week there, but it was a monster hit, and it most certainly wasn't Bon Jovi's last chart topper. Funnily enough, this is the second Hit Parade episode in just a couple of months where we've zoomed in on a big hit from late 1986. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about Run DMC's cover of Aerosmith's Walk This Way, a number four hit in September of 86, and a key moment for rap on the pop charts. As I noted in that episode, Walk This Way sounded hard-edged compared with its competition at the time, schlocky hits from the likes of Huey Lewis and Lionel Richie. But that's not all that was succeeding on the charts that year. With 2020 hindsight, 1986 was the last major chart year for 80s new wave, the British-led, American-fueled, synth-heavy phenomenon that dominated MTV's first five years. When we think of the Reagan decade, this sound and this style is what we picture. Have you ever thrown an 80s party or attended an 80s dance? Ever dressed for Halloween in Flock of Seagulls hair? Since MTV launched in 1981, so-called New Romantic and New Wave music had had a good run on the U.S. charts. 
And as late as the spring, summer, and fall of 1986, British acts with strong new wave and sophistapop affiliations were still topping the Hot 100, from the Pet Shop Boys to Peter Gabriel, the Human League to Banana Rama. Bon Jovi represented a break from all that when You Give Love a Bad Name topped the Hot 100 that fall. It was a sign that pop in the back half of the 80s would shift in a more guitar-oriented direction, not unlike what Walk This Way signified for rap. Bon Jovi's breakthrough single sounds like such an inevitable hit now, it's easy to forget how surprising its success was at the time. That's because, for most of the prior two decades, hard rock and heavy metal had not been considered pop chart music. Sometimes I wonder what I'm gonna do. No, there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. That's Bay Area psychedelic rockers Blue Cheer, with the first hit generally agreed to qualify as heavy metal. Their turned up to 11 cover of the classic 50s Eddie Cochran song Summertime Blues peaked at number 14 on the Hot 100 in May of 1968. Before we go any further, now would be a good time for a bit of nomenclature, not so much a definition as an admission of futility. The term metal and its boundaries are more zealously policed than almost any genre in popular music. Artists once considered essential to metal are downgraded to terms ranging from hard rock to arena rock to glam. Songs once considered almost satanic might now be playable on classic rock or even adult contemporary radio. In a bit, we will discuss the development of the pop-friendly subgenre hair metal, about which there is less debate. But in the unlikely event that you, listener, are a metalhead, first of all, welcome to Hit Parade, and second, I acknowledge you might not consider much of the music we discuss in this episode to be actual metal especially after 30 years of such subgenres as death metal, speed metal, black metal, and grindcore. Let's simply agree that metal's goalposts are ever-shifting. In fact, what we are chronicling in this episode about Bon Jovi and their 80s peers was how much a so-called metal song could be softened and still be considered metal. I bring up this definitional quandary because even before the 80s, it's debatable whether anything you could call metal had ever topped Billboard's Hot 100 chart. In the 70s, generally, you could only reach the top of the chart if you mixed your hard rock with small dollops of pop, boogie rock, and white funk, like Grand Funk Railroad. Or the Edgar Winter Group. Both of these songs, We're an American Band and Frankenstein, topped America's flagship chart in 1973. But neither song is metal, even by the softer definition prevalent in the 70s. Back then, heavy metal's leading avatars were bands that couldn't get near the top 40, let alone the number one slot, such as the Ozzy Osbourne-fronted Black Sabbath. Both Iron Man and Paranoid, their only Hot 100 hits, peaked below the top 50. 
and Led Zeppelin, the top hard rock act of the decade, were not a big singles band, although they would release 45s occasionally, as we noted in past episodes of Hit Parade. Almost all of their small handful of hits peaked somewhere in the middle of the Hot 100, and their only top 10 hit came early in their career, when Whole Lotta Love peaked in early 1970 at number four. Number four was also the high watermark for the formative early metal single Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple, which reached its peak in 1973. By the late 70s, even bands that did mix pop with their metal had to soften themselves considerably to get on Top 40 radio. Seminal costumed glam metal band Kiss managed to crack the lower rungs of the Top 40 with singles like Shout It Out Loud and the immortal Rock and Roll All Night. But Kiss only managed to crack the chart's top 10 when they let their drummer, Peter Chris sing a very soft ballad, built around a piano and strings, with scarcely any electric instruments at all. Beth, Kiss's biggest pop hit, was one of the earliest power ballads, peaking at number seven in the fall of 76. It was a sign of things to come, a foreshadowing that hard rock bands would do best on the charts when they turned down the guitars. Beth, I hear you calling, but I can't come home right now. Me and the boys are playing, and we just can't find the sound. If Kiss were one sign of where glam metal was headed in the next decade, one year after Beth fell off the Hot 100 came an even more pivotal moment. As we noted in our Donna Summer episode about the song I Feel Love, which, in 1977, kicked off such 80s styles as electro dance and technopop, the hair metal 80s kicked off in earnest in 1978 with this album by a four-man band from Pasadena, California, and their new sound came in with a brontosaurus stomp. Van Halen would be a formative text for not only Bon Jovi, but all of 80s rock in more ways than one. Like the future band from New Jersey, this California foursome was named after its leader, Eddie Van Halen, and his drummer brother, Alex Van Halen. Except, unlike John Bon Jovi, Eddie wasn't a singer. He was the band's lead guitarist, and one of the most groundbreaking in rock history. An entire genre of post-blues, hammer-on, fleet-fingered, pyrotechnic metal was essentially invented by Eddie Van Halen on the band's self-titled debut album, now commonly referred to as Van Halen 1. (laughs) 
One little remembered factoid about that first Van Halen album was that it actually generated a top 40 hit relatively quickly. Its lead-off single was already on the Hot 100 about a month and a half before the album, and it broke into the top 40 in March of 78, the same week the eponymous Van Halen album debuted on the Billboard album chart. The single? A remake of the Kinks rock classic You Really Got Me, a number seven hit in 1964. And it was a spotlight for the band's fearless showman, the ingratiating, mischievous vocalist, Diamond David Lee Roth. As impressive as this fast start was for Van Halen, the band hit the same ceiling all hard rock hit in the 1970s. In fact, compared with Kiss or Led Zeppelin, their ceiling was even lower. You Really Got Me peaked at number 36 in March of 78, and it was in and out of the top 40 in just three weeks. Even at the start of the 1980s, this same roadblock applied to virtually all metallic hard rock, no matter how catchy and accessible the song. Consider this classic ditty. Formed in Australia by a pair of Scotland-born brothers, ACDC are one of the best-selling acts, period, in rock history, let alone hard rock. The band, led by Angus Young and his late brother Malcolm, are certified for roughly $200 million in sales worldwide, about a third of that in the U.S. alone. And none of their albums is a better seller than 1980's Back in Black. Recorded as the band mourned the early 1980 death of singer Bon Scott, Back in Black marked the debut of screeching vocalist Brian Johnson, and it served as the band's pop coming out. It generated ACDC's first-ever American Top 40 hits, 1980's You Shook Me All Night Long, and 1981's proto-breakbeat classic Back in Black. As legendary as these two hits from Back in Black remain to this day, neither was a big pop hit. You Shook Me All Night Long peaked at number 35 in November 1980, and the album's title track reached number 37 in February 1981. At a time when disco was only starting to fade and the Hot 100 was being topped by the likes of Barbara Streisand and Kenny Rogers, screeching metal like ACDC was still disadvantaged on the pop charts. ACDC's album did considerably better, reaching number four just before Christmas 1980. Perhaps the most vital talent on the Back in Black album wasn't new singer Brian Johnson or guitar hero Angus Young. It was the album's producer, a German South African man born in Zambia named Robert John Lang, nicknamed Mutt since childhood. Robert John Mutt Lang emerged as one of the most successful and meticulous producers in rock history, 
Even when working with a down-and-dirty act like ACDC, Mutt built albums painstakingly, achieving a radio-friendly sound marked by flashy, soaring choruses and shimmering walls of guitars. Back in Black was actually Lang's second album with ACDC. He had already turned the band into platinum sellers with 1979's Highway to Hell. But Back in Black established Mutt's bona fides in hard rock once and for all, which led to work with other pop metal acts who would chart even higher. Starting in 1981, just a few months after Back in Black, Mutt Lang began working with Sheffield, England metal band Def Leppard, and he turned them into multi-platinum superstars, the biggest selling band of a late 70s, early 80s movement that was then called the New Wave of British Heavy Metal. By the way, if you've ever wondered why so much of Def Leppard's merchandise features variations on the UK's Union Jack flag, It's a vestige of that movement, encompassing such metal bands as Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Mutt began working with Leopard on 1981's High and Dry, but it was his second album with the group, their third overall, 1983's Pyromania, that transformed the Sheffield band into MTV celebrities. The album's lead-off single, the pop metal classic Photograph, reached number 12 on the Hot 100 in May of 83. And the Pyromania album reached a simultaneous peak of number two on the Billboard album chart. If not for Michael Jackson's mega blockbuster thriller, Def Leppard would have topped the album chart. None of Pyromania's three singles, Photograph, Rock of Ages, or Foolin', managed to crack the Hot 100's top 10. But by 1984, the album was sextuple platinum. One can imagine an alternate history in which it was Def Leppard, teamed with Mutt Lang, who turned hair metal into permanent pop royalty. But Leopard would be absent from the top 40 for about four years, missing the genre's pop chart breakthrough. Actually, before 1983 was even over, Leopard helped set the stage for an American band whose album had the word metal right in the title, and they would chart even better in Billboard. Quiet Riot a Southern California band that formed in the mid-70s, did not really want to record a cover of Slade's 1973 UK number one hit, Come On, Feel the Noise. But the producer of their third album, Spencer Proffer, was insistent, and the band's shrieking cover of the song reached number five on the Hot 100 in mid-November 1983. One week later, Quiet Riot's album Metal Health became a giant killer, knocking the police's synchronicity out of the number one spot on the album chart after a 17-week run, and holding off both Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson for a single week. 
That made Metal Health the first official heavy metal album to top the American charts. Again, if Def Leppard's Pyromania had gone just one spot higher six months earlier, they would have held that distinction. Metal was now officially emerging as a fixture on both Top 40 playlists and MTV's airwaves heading into 1984. That year, by the way, would be the title of an album that would take metal the last mile on the charts, giving it a number one single. Opening with a monster synthesizer hook, Jump was the lead single from Van Halen's 1984 album, 1984, or MCMLXXXIV, as it was styled in Roman numerals on the album's cover. The band had yet to crack the U.S. Top 10, but they were poised for a breakthrough. In late 1982, Eddie contributed a searing guitar solo to Michael Jackson's R&B rock hybrid, Beat It a song that reached number one on both the Hot 100 and Hot Black Singles charts in the spring of 83. Beat It primed pop radio for Van Halen to score a chart topper of their own. At the turn of 84, both MTV and Top 40 Radio were at peak synthesizer, and leading off the next Van Halen album with a song that emphasized synths over guitar was a savvy move. Jump took just two weeks to crack the top 40 and only seven to reach number one. It spent five weeks on top. The same month Jump was commanding the Hot 100, a comedy film premiered on U.S. movie screens called This Is Spinal Tap. Directed by Rob Reiner and starring Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shearer, This Is Spinal Tap helped pioneer the so-called mockumentary format as it offered a straight-faced but hilarious chronicle of fictional British metal band Spinal Tap. The movie was only a modest box office performer in the spring of 84, but it is now enshrined in the Library of Congress and widely cited on lists of the best comedies of all time. In one segment of the film, Reiner's faux documentarian, Marty DeBerge, interviews McKean's David St. Hubbins and guests Nigel Tufnell about the band's testosterone-heavy fan base. One thing that puzzles me um, is the makeup of your audience it seems to be uh, predominantly young boys. Well, it's a sexual thing, really. It's, aside from the identifying that the boys do with us, there's also like a, re a reaction to the female of the female to our music. Yeah, when you really, they're quite fearful. Yeah, that was my theory. They see us on stage with tight trousers. We've got you know armadillos in our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening. The size. Yeah, and, and they, they run screaming. Like so many moments in this movie, this witty scene satirized an essential heavy metal truth. 
Up to now, the appeal of metal had been largely confined to young men. While a core of women certainly enjoyed metal dating back to Led Zeppelin in the 70s, the music was, by and large, not directly marketed to them. Jump helped change that. It would not have gone to number one had it not been, at its core, a rocking synth-pop song. Van Halen had already codified hair metal as far back as their 78 debut. But Jump established hair metal as, in essence, hard rock for everybody. The problem was, little else on Van Halen's 1984 album emulated this approach. None of its three follow-up singles cracked the pop top ten. In fact, for the rest of 1984, no metal single managed to follow Jump into the top 10. Van Halen's breakthrough hit had essentially no coattails. But it wasn't for lack of trying. Billboard reported that metal songs were beginning to crack pop radio playlists and earn requests from female listeners. And why not? The songs were sturdy and catchy, sporting strong pop hooks, regardless of where the bands hailed from whether from German rockers The Scorpions Sunset Strip band Rat Long Island scaremongering band Twisted Sister or a five-man band from Sayreville, New Jersey, named after their hirsute lead singer. When they cracked the top 40 one week in April 1984, Casey Kasem counted it down, although he had a little trouble back then pronouncing Richie Sambora's last name. American Top 40 AT40 originates in Hollywood. Five songs debut in this week's countdown. Here's one by a rock group named for their lead singer, John Bon Jovi. The others in the band are David Rushbaum, Alec John Such, Tico Torres, and Richie Sombaro. Here they are with Runaway, Bon Jovi. Runaway took about 18 months to become a hit. John Bon Jovi first recorded it in 1982 with a completely different lineup of musicians, a band that didn't have an official name. He called the crew the All-Star Review. In the early 80s, young John got his first exposure to both rock stars and the recording studio courtesy of his cousin, Tony Bongiovi, co-owner of New York City's Power Station recording studio. The teenage John Bongiovi would sweep studio floors and sit in occasionally on tracking sessions for members of Bruce's E Street Band, among others. On the strength of a New York Top 40 station that was playing Runaway as a single in 1983, Mercury Records signed John to a major label contract. He moved quickly to build a band. Band manager Don McGee recommended naming the new group Van Halen Style after its leader, whose Italian last name, Bon Jovi, became the band name Bon Jovi. The self-titled Bon Jovi album debuted on the Billboard album chart in February 1984, and its slow-emerging lead-off single finally reached the top 40 in April. Oh, 
but Casey Kasem wouldn't have to learn how to pronounce the band members' names right away. Bon Jovi's debut single was in and out of the national top 40 in just one week, and the band wouldn't crack the upper reaches of the Hot 100 for another two and a half years. When we come back, we'll talk about this two-year period on the pop charts and what finally broke Bon Jovi and all of hair metal. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This two-year period on the pop charts, from mid-1984 to late-1986, would be an odd interzone for hard rock and heavy metal. On MTV, metal videos with their flashy guitar solos, leather-clad performers, and scantily-clad women would dominate multiple hours of the broadcast day. But at radio, the songs were only medium-sized hits, no matter how catchy or power-rotated by music television. On their third album, 1985's Theater of Pain, L.A. band Motley Crue came loaded for bear with an undeniable, pop-friendly cover of the Brownsville Station 1974 number three hit, Smokin' in the Boys' Room. However, the crew couldn't replicate Brownsville Station's top five or even top ten peak maxing out on the Hot 100 at number 16 in September of 85. Not bad for a Sunset Strip band who'd never come close to the top 40 before, and better than Bon Jovi was doing. Indeed, by 85, Bon Jovi were already onto their second album, and none of its singles were connecting at Top 40 Radio. The album, 7800 Degrees Fahrenheit, uh, by the way, that temperature is the supposed melting point for rock. These guys can't even do nerd stuff right. Anyway, the album's first single, Only Lonely, peaked at number 54 in the spring of 85, at a time when the pop charts were awash in Madonna, Wham!, and Tears for Fears, radio programmers weren't all that interested in the Jovi. By late 1985, if you asked a regular teenage watcher of MTV what metal song was a big chart-topping hit, they wouldn't have picked anything by Bon Jovi, Quiet Riot, or even the on-hiatus Van Halen. They would have picked this song. Arguably the ultimate power ballad of the 1980s, so famous that, a quarter century later, the Gen X nostalgia movie Hot Tub Time Machine would close with a hilarious homage to it, 
Home Sweet Home by Motley Crue was basically the biggest video on MTV for much of 1985 and 86. It consistently generated the most requests on Dial MTV, the channel's daily call-in request show, for months on end. And yet, on the Hot 100, Home Sweet Home peaked at a mystifying number 89, and it was off the chart in a month and a half. Even on album rock radio, Motley Crue's Home Sweet Home peaked at a modest number 38. The power ballad was too soft for rock fans and too déclassé for pop fans. All of this backdrop is essential to understanding why Bon Jovi's eventual breakthrough came as such a shock. Before late 1986, even the poppiest-sounding metal songs were supposed to appeal primarily to boys, peak somewhere in the lower rungs of the Billboard charts, spur some album sales, and that's it. In the entire first half of the 1980s, Van Halen's Jump was the anomaly, the only metal number one hit of any kind. Through 1985 and the first half of 86, you could get through your day as a pop fan encountering relatively little hard rock. What finally pushed hair metal to the top of the pops was a song that rewrote the rules by rethinking what anthemic pop could sound like. It's been said here in the 2010s, the era of Spotify, that hit songs now can't waste any time getting to the chorus. On streaming services, hit records deploy the catchiest part of the song right up front. Well, let's give Bon Jovi their due. They figured this out three decades ago. And their breakthrough hit, which, I'm sorry folks, I'm going to have to foist upon you again, didn't waste a second of your time waiting for the hook. The secret sauce Bon Jovi spread all over their third album was a man named Desmond Child. Calling him just a songwriter is too simple. Like Phil Spector before him, Diane Warren contemporaneous with him, and Max Martin after him, Child was a song doctor, innately plugged in to what made a pop hit work. And that's what You Give Love a Bad Name was, a ruthlessly effective radio smash. Child had actually performed this magic for a hair metal band before, way back in 1979, at the height of disco, he co-wrote I Was Made For Lovin' You, a crossover disco rock hit for glam metal Hall of Famer's Kiss. It peaked at number 11 in the year of Disco Demolition Night and branded Kiss as sellouts to their dude rock fan base. Desmond Child would go on to write and produce hard rock anthems for such 80s stars as Aerosmith, Joan Jett, and Cher. In the late 90s, he would even co-write Ricky Martin's English-language breakthrough Livin' La Vida Loca. 
But back in 86, Bon Jovi's third album was a huge breakthrough, not just for him, but for his jugular-grabbing pop metal sound. Child was all over Slippery When Wet, whose final 10-song lineup was determined after surveying New York-area teens about which songs they liked best from a pool of dozens. In a final touch, the band abandoned the album's original cover art, a photo of a buxom woman wearing a wet yellow t-shirt, for a more anodyne photo of the album's title written with a finger on a wet black garbage bag. Slippery When Wet first topped the album chart in October of 1986, just a couple of weeks before You Give Love a Bad Name topped the Hot 100. Just two weeks after Bad Name fell out of the number one spot, Bon Jovi were back on the Hot 100 with another Desmond Child composition, the Springsteen light blue-collar anthem Living on a Prayer. Again, Child and co-writers John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora were taking the old and making it new again. The talk box was an effect Peter Frampton made famous back in 1976, powering his blockbuster chart-topping live album, Frampton Comes Alive. Bon Jovi revived the talk box sound for the 80s on Livin' on a Prayer, which opens with what is now probably the most famous talk box hook in pop history. Prayer reached number one on the Hot 100 in February 1987. And unlike Bad Name, it stayed on top for four weeks. By early 87, Bon Jovi and the Desmond Child sound had opened up pop radio playlists to other hard rockers with piles of moose hair, double-necked guitars, and spandex. One immediate beneficiary of Bon Jovi's breakthrough had been lying in wait all of the prior year. Europe were a Swedish metal band already on their third album when they issued the absurdly catchy The Final Countdown in the spring of 86, months before Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. MTV played Europe's video in low rotation for months, all summer and fall, but radio stations on either side of the Atlantic wouldn't touch their brand of moost Scandinavian pop metal. But after Bon Jovi, the final countdown, whose deathless keyboard riff is probably playing at a stadium or as someone's ringtone as I speak, debuted on the Hot 100 and wound up in the top 10 by the spring of 87. In England, Europe's hit went all the way to number one, the first metal song to top the UK charts ever. Europe's album wound up triple platinum in America. This was the key difference, 
Unlike Van Halen's 84 hit Jump, what distinguished Bon Jovi's 86-87 breakthrough was it had coattails. Top 40 Radio now wanted more Jovi, but also more pop metal in general. For example, a band from the West Philadelphia suburbs, Cinderella, had the good fortune to be touring with Bon Jovi when Bad Name and Prayer topped the charts. The result? Cinderella's album Night Songs flew into the album chart top three, and their singles began scaling the Hot 100. Or consider Poison, a glam metal band so heavily made up they made Boy George look austere. Their album, Look What the Cat Dragged In, had been riding the bottom half of the album chart since the middle of 1986, without connecting at radio. After the Bon Jovi breakthrough, in early 87, their irresistible power-pop hit, Talk Dirty To Me, shot into the pop top ten, and the Cat Dragged In album went triple platinum. Motley Crue also benefited from the changed climate for metal. They dropped their fourth album, Girls, 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 in the spring of 87, and it exploded onto the charts, debuting in Billboard all the way up at number five, an unusually high entry for the pre-SoundScan era. The week in June 87, the Crue's album slammed onto the charts, five of the top six albums in America were metal. If it hadn't been for U2's The Joshua Tree at number one, the entire album chart top five would have been metal, from Bon Jovi to Ozzy Osbourne, Poison to The Crew. Their stripper-celebrating lead-off single and title track reached number 12 in the summer of 87, far better than Home Sweet Home had done less than two years earlier. But Europe, Cinderella, and the crew were whippersnappers compared with some of the rockers that waltzed through the door John Bon Jovi kicked open. In the summer of 87, David Coverdale, 36-year-old frontman for the hard rock band Whitesnake, revived a song he and his guitarist had written five years earlier, the soaring power ballad Here I Go Again. Re-recorded with keyboards and friendlier guitar hooks for Whitesnake's self-titled seventh album, Here I Go Again reached number one on the Hot 100 by October of 87. By 1988 and 89, the pop metal explosion generated some of the highest charting hits ever for such 40-something rockers as Ozzy Osbourne, Robert Plant, Kiss, and even Alice Cooper. And what was John Bon Jovi doing while all of these bands were profiting from his profile? He was pretending to be a cowboy. I'm a cowboy on a steel horse I ride. I'm wanted, dead or 
That is, when he wasn't crooning about what he did to his high school girlfriend in the backseat of a car. Bon Jovi's music had redefined the middle of the road. By the end of 87, it would also redefine the sound of pop. When former Go-Go's singer Belinda Carlisle issued the lead-off single to her second solo album, Heaven on Earth, you could be forgiven for thinking Desmond Child and John Bon Jovi had something to do with it. Reaching number one one year, almost to the week after You Give Love a Bad Name, Carlisle's Heaven is a Place on Earth is structurally practically a carbon copy of Bon Jovi's hit. The melody is different. Nothing has actually been pilfered by veteran songwriter Rick Knowles. But Carlisle's chart topper could only have come out in the second half of the 80s. The pop metal formula is all over this slice of sun-kissed big 80s pop, especially its exploding opening chorus. Some of this same power ballad metallic pop drama started rubbing off on other pure pop of the period, whether from Cher... or even dance diva Taylor Dane. By the start of 1988, Billboard revealed that Slippery When Wet had been the top album of 1987, a year, by the way, that saw new releases from Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, U2, and Bruce Springsteen. Slippery beat them all and was certified octuple platinum by the end of 87. By the mid-90s, Slippery was certified for U.S. sales of 12 million. For Bon Jovi in 1988, the trick was how to follow it up. Although, given their status as culture-shifting rock stars, virtually anything they issued in the wake of Slippery would be guaranteed instant success. And that's pretty much what happened. New Jersey, Bon Jovi's fourth album, reached number one on the charts in its second week of release and spun off five top ten hits. But the state of the art in hard rock had not remained static while Bon Jovi were between albums. In the summer of 87, two albums landed that, over the next two years, would redefine both ends of the hair metal spectrum. The first was the debut studio album by L.A. metal band Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. It would take nearly a year to break on the charts and begin spinning off radio hits. But the band, fronted by singer Axl Rose and guitarist Slash, would move the goalposts of accessible metal deeper into heavy shredding territory. Meanwhile, on the poppier end of the spectrum, arriving in August 1987 and also taking the better part of a year to break big was Hysteria, 
Def Leppard's long-awaited follow-up to 1983's Pyromania. The British band had been to hell and back in their four years out of the spotlight, most especially when drummer Rick Allen lost his arm in a car accident on New Year's 1984. This delayed the recording and release of their fourth album. Constructed over three years of meticulous sessions with producer Mutt Lang, Hysteria would go on to spawn six top 40 hits and sell more than 12 million copies in the U.S. alone. Both acts handily outsold New Jersey by mid-1989, and the commercial breakthrough that year of yet another pummeling band threatened to make Bon Jovi look even fluffier. L.A. thrash metal band Metallica had been issuing albums since 1983 and had seen its share of tragedy. Original bassist Cliff Burton died on tour in a bus accident in 1986. The band soldiered on without him, and their next album, 1988's And Justice For All, proved their commercial breakthrough. The downbeat, uncompromising single, One, even cracked the pop top 40, peaking at number 35 in the spring of 1989. Metallica were the leading edge of a second wave of hair metal that, alongside Guns N' Roses, pushed the limits of how hard a commercially successful act could be. If a band as tough-minded as Metallica could become multi-platinum, radio-embraced stars, it meant even the poppier metal bands could go harder. Later in 1989, another New Jersey band, Skid Row, managed to score a pair of top 10 hits that were more aggressive than anything from the 86-87 wave of hair metal. Compared with 18 and Life and One, songs like Bon Jovi's I'll Be There For You might as well have been easy listening. But the song topped the Hot 100 in the spring of 89 anyway. One year later, still riding his imperial high point, John Bon Jovi issued his first ever solo album. Taking a page from Prince and his single artist Batman soundtrack, John Bon recorded a full album devoted to the Western movie sequel Young Guns 2. The album's title track, Blaze of Glory, topped the Hot 100 in the summer of 1990 and was even nominated for an Oscar. But even as John Bond was riding high, 
the emergence of edgier bands like Guns and Metallica also made it easier for critics to embrace metal and to dismiss Bon Jovi. John Bon Jovi could afford to ignore these critical brickbats, especially when the New Jersey album was certified quintuple platinum by the middle of 1989. To slow old John Bon's roll, the public, not the critics, were going to have to determine on their own that hair metal was terminally uncool. And then, well, you probably know what comes next in this story. Here's the thing about the 25-year-old argument that Kurt Cobain and grunge killed hair metal at the turn of the 90s. It's both too simple to be true and too persuasive to ignore. When Nirvana's Nevermind album became a chart-topping hit at the end of 1991, it was indeed an unprecedented moment for punk and indie-derived rock. On the other hand, metal bands had long attested to their admiration for and influence by punk. From proto-punkers like the MC5 to peak 70s punk like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones. Moreover, many first-wave grunge bands, especially Soundgarden, owed as much of their sound to early metal like Black Sabbath as they did to punk. As for the charts, metal bands were not wiped off the face of the earth or the radio instantly when Nirvana showed up. Within weeks of Nevermind topping the charts in the spring of 1992, glam metal band Mr. Big scored a number one hit with the soft rock ditty To Be With You. Mr. Big were joined later that year by hits from Ugly Kid Joe and Saigon Kick. And in the summer of 1992, even now veterans Guns N' Roses were hitting the top 10 with hits like November Rain. Metal bands that could sound either sufficiently mellow or sufficiently badass would continue to have careers. The only question is what grunge would do to the avatars of pop metal, like Bon Jovi. It took until the fall of 1992 for Bon Jovi to test their commercial prowess in this new post-Cobain rock universe. It did not go well. Keep the Faith was the title track of Bon Jovi's fifth album, and the song peaked on the Hot 100 at number 29. The album, their follow-up to New Jersey, debuted and peaked on the album chart at number five. Respectable, but a big comedown from the chart-topping success of Bon Jovi's last two albums. By the way, touching on something we discussed in last month's Hit Parade episode about Madonna, the same month she broke her streak of number one albums with her underperformer Erotica, Bon Jovi were crashing and burning with Keep the Faith, 
it was a rough month for 80s megastars trying to keep up with the 90s. Say this for Bon Jovi, they didn't lose faith in their ability to adapt. While snide critics and haters like me were poking fun at their flop single, John and the boys were regrouping and charging at the charts again. And, as Mr. Big reinforced, nothing works better on pop radio than a power ballad. By March of 1993, Bon Jovi had managed to sneak back into the top 10 with the gushy love song Bed of Roses. Though it would take two years, the Keep the Faith album did eventually go double platinum. Again, not unlike Madonna in the first half of the 90s, Bon Jovi stayed afloat by focusing on ballads. As late as 1994, they were scoring the longest-lasting hit of their careers with the yowling mega-ballad, Always. The song peaked at number four on the Hot 100 in January of 1995 a time when every other 80s metal band had cycled off the radio. Always, Bon Jovi's last top five hit spent a stunning 32 weeks on the Hot 100, longer than any of their 80s hits. They had actually lasted long enough on the charts that even a cartoon metalhead teenager named Beavis was defending them to his friend. What did you say, Beavis? Oh, no, I'm just saying, you know, um, hey... You know, I kind of like this one part of the song, you know, where it goes, Give me something for the pain. Cut it out, bunghole! I'm doing it for your own good, Beaver. You're starting to like this song. Well, no, I mean, I still think Bon Jovi sucks, but um, I just kind of think this song, you know, it's kind of, um, there's just this one part that kind of like... Bon Jovi never reached the top ten on the singles charts again. But they never really went away. In the 25 years after Keep the Faith, Bon Jovi have scored nine more top 10 albums. Their last four discs have all actually debuted on the charts at number one. But that's not the only way you can still see the Jovi fingerprints on the charts. Not much hard rock in the new millennium sounds all that much like vintage Bon Jovi. But pop music? That's a different story. It's tearing up my heart when I'm with you, but when we are apart, I feel it too, and no matter what I do, I The pop renaissance of the late 90s and early aughts, which we've discussed in past episodes of Hit Parade, has subtle but unmistakable connections to 80s pop metal like Bon Jovi, and most of those connections flow through one man. Swedish pop mastermind Max Martin, whose sound has dominated the radio for the last 20 years. A little remarked fact about Max Martin was that, long before he was discovered as a songwriter in Stockholm, he was in an 80s hair metal band.
the sound of peak pop metal courses through Max Martin's veins, and it emerges in many of his productions. The way his boy band hits explode out of the speakers, just like You Give Love a Bad Name, has not gone unnoticed by savvy pop fans. In fact, in the early 2000s, one clever fan even mashed up a pair of hits from Max Martin with unmistakable structural similarities. The Backstreet Boys' 1999 hit, Larger Than Life, and Bon Jovi's 2000 hit, It's My Life. It's my Oh yeah, and did I mention, Bon Jovi actually recorded with Max Martin at the turn of the millennium. Though it only peaked on the Hot 100 at number 33, It's My Life has proven a long-lasting hit for Bon Jovi, regularly making their live set lists and ranking as the group's most viewed hit of the YouTube era. The song even features Richie Sambora playing The Talk Box, in homage to Bon Jovi's earlier smash, Living on a Pole. As for Scandinavian hair metal fan Max Martin, he has not stopped scoring hits in the 2010s. He also isn't above reanimating the old Desmond Child trick of the song opening exploding pop chorus. As recently as 2015, Martin was using the tactic to generate hits for Taylor Swift. Cause baby, now we got bad blood. You know it used to be mad love. So take a look what you've done. Cause baby, now we got bad blood. Hey, now we got And Bon Jovi? As I mentioned at the top of the show, they had a number one album as recently as, no kidding, one month ago. It's a bit confusing to explain, but follow me here. Bon Jovi's 2016 album, This House Is Not For Sale, made a re-debut at number one on the album chart in 2018. How? That old sly dog, Mr. Jovi, launched another wave of the band's latest tour, and he offered the 2016 album as a free download to fans purchasing concert tickets. Those fans who redeemed the offer for the free album have their downloads counted toward the Billboard charts. In early March, as the tour leg kicked off, more than 120,000 Bon Jovi fans elected to redeem their free album coupon. And on the strength of those downloads, This House Is Not For Sale re-entered the Billboard 200 album chart at number one. A shady but perfectly legal tactic for scoring a chart-topping album in the late tens. Now, as we wrap up this episode of Hit Parade, this is normally the moment where I offer a triumphant live performance by the subject of our episode, an inspiring reminder that the spirit of classic pop never dies. But this is still my show. I still can't stand Bon Jovi, even as I acknowledge their influence. And I will be damned if I'm going to let them take a victory lap at the end of my podcast. So, how about some Def Leppard? Look, if their drummer hadn't had that horrible accident in 1984 and Hysteria had come out in 1986 as originally planned, who knows? 
maybe pour some sugar on me or love bites or armageddon it would have been the song to break hair metal on pop radio maybe bon jovi would have been riding leopard's coattails def leopard are having a pretty great 2018 over the winter, the band reissued all of their classic albums on streaming services, which prompted several of those albums to reappear on the Billboard charts. And they too are touring this summer in a double bill with Journey. Their producer, Mutt Lang, is at least as influential on the sound of modern pop as Max Martin is, having produced everyone from Shania Twain to Maroon 5 to Lady Gaga. And if any of my fellow Rock and Roll Hall of Fame voters are listening to this podcast, especially you nominating committee members, come on, guys. If the Jovi are in, it's high time we let in the left. Despite it all, I do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hit Parade. My producer is Chris Berube, and we had help this episode from Danielle Hewitt and Dan Berube. Sorry, guys. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. Our senior producer is TJ Raphael. And the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture Gabfest feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way, and never playing Bon Jovi again. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanthi. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 